This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Amazon Prime Student. Advertisers have uh, given me notes that I'm a little boring during these ad reads, so they want me to be more more edgy in in, in showcasing their product. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try something here. Amazon Prime Student, you can get fast, free shipping on over 100 million items, stream thousands of TV shows and movies, and get exclusive college deals. My bitch. After your trial, Prime Student is just six forty nine a month, half the price of a non-student Prime membership. My my bitch. <laughs> you can cancel any time, my bitch. College deals and exclusive promotions, my bitch. Top deals for students on electronic school supplies and more, my bitch. We find the deals. You shop and save. And enjoy. Prime Student works with hundreds of vendors to surface great deals just for students. Whether you're headed to college yourself, have a child going to college, or are looking for the perfect gift for a college student, we have you covered. From laptops and video games to study snacks and office supplies, you'll find it here. Happy off-to-college shopping, my bitch. Students can start their free six-month trial of Amazon Prime by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash primestudent. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash primestudent, my bitch. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing... On comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business of crafting writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button shop on Amazon like Norwood, and I get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Django Gold, here for The Onion in New York and in Chicago. And now writes for Colbert. Django is a really interesting guy, and I think you guys will really like this episode. So here is Django Gold. Uh, Django, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I am originally from, I was born in California, but spent a lot of my uh, childhood growing up in uh, uh, rural Illinois before moving back to California. And then I went to college in Boston, moved to New York, then moved to Chicago, and moved back to New York. And that's so all over. That's where I am today, yeah. Uh, so you, you grew up mostly, though, in, in Illinois? I'd say half Illinois, half California. I kind of associate my childhood with the Midwest just because it's just so much more quaint. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. what, what, part of, uh, what part of Illinois? Or what part of California, I mean? California, I grew up in a town called Santa Rosa, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. It's uh, very scenic. Cool. Although it did just burn down last year, so... Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the many uh, epicenters of various forest fires that are a new reality we had to start being accustomed to. Yeah. That, that is because I guess that's always a kind of a possibility in California. Yeah. Because when you drive down the highway uh, in California, you'll see signs on the side of the road that are like fire risk today. Right. And these have been been displayed since time immemorial. But now just the fire risk is so much higher because of all the dry brush. So. On that note, it's good to be here. <laughs> Say goodbye to California, as you know it. Uh, when you were a kid, were you interested in comedy at all? Honestly, I was interested in comedy as a, a viewer of comedy. I re- religiously watched The Simpsons when, when, it, when it still is a syndication, but the tw- twice daily syndication episodes, you know, from the age of say nine to like fifteen, I watched it basically every day. So that was a pretty big thing. But I honestly wasn't interested in making comedy. Until about age 25, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm 33 now, so about eight years ago, I kind of started getting into it. What uh, What's your favorite Simpsons episode? Uh, favorite Simpsons episode is Rosebud. Second favorite Simpsons episode is Homer Badman. Rosebud's the the one with Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns uh, trying to be reunited with his lost childhood teddy bear. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, big fan of that episode. I could happily talk about it all day if you wanted. To. Are, are you? A, are, well, I guess that's a parody of Citizen Kane, right? Are you like? Are you like a, a Citizen Kane fan, or is that just like the tropes no, of it? No, I just like. I think the episode just has a lot of really funny, funny bits in it. A lot of funny yeah. set pieces. That's the episode with the sixty-four slices of American cheese. Uh, that's when, when. That's when Burns and Smithers are trying to rob uh, the Simpson house of the bear, and they sneak in with plungers on their hands through the ceiling and they're in, oh, inter- yeah. interrupted because Homer has a late night snack in which he consumes 64 ounces or sorry 64 slices of American cheese and that's just a really great gag to me I've always really enjoyed it <laughs> I was thinking my favorite Simpsons gag is um, uh, it's a really stupid one as most of them are in a great way it was uh, Bart and Milhouse were talking and uh, I think Milhouse or Bart told Milhouse we're going to go see an R-rated movie or is Milhouse told Bart we're going to go see an R-rated movie 
and he gets in the car with, with a couple of kids and they just started chanting Barton Fink Barton yeah, yeah, Fink yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's uh, <laughs> I, I, I watch that like once a month it always makes you laugh oh man it's so funny how the Simpsons are like like every single person you interview on this podcast I'm sure could have the same conversation right in the way they can't really do it with Seinfeld or Malcolm in the Middle I don't know right what, yeah what, Malcolm in the Middle what else do people enjoy Human I life. did. I did used to watch in a similar thing in syndication. I used to watch Seinfeld like every day for like two, two or three years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder if I watch the most Seinfeld in the world right now, which probably isn't true. Probably someone was watching more Seinfeld than me. How many episodes did you watch a day? It was two a day. Two a day for how many years? For three, it's like two or three years. I mean, you're definitely probably in the one first percent percentile, ninety ninth percentile, or whatever. And it's weird because that was in high school, and I haven't watched them since. I wonder what I think about them now. I'm sure you'd still enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic show. The, the only risk is that when you watch something so many times, it, you get kind of all dull to it. So now I can watch a episode of The Simpsons in that golden era, and like I see all the jokes. like I know all the jokes line for line, so it's hard right. to really... Cra- it's, it's more like my reaction is more like, um, that was quite good. Yes, <laughs> quite good, you know? So so you weren't you didn't think about comedy? You, were you doing like any comedy stuff like as a kid growing up? Not really. No, honestly, it took me until I was about 25, 24, 25 to get into it. I was... um. I used to play music fairly seriously, and I would occasionally bring my acoustic guitar to the local bar where they had like the open mic night, and I would play my acoustic guitar songs, and at that open mic, which was at a bar in Boston called The Alchemist, which is no longer around, they would have a lot of uh, comedians rolling through there, and they would do their sets, and after seeing that for a few weeks, I was like, I, I could probably give this a shot. It seems like yeah. something I do, so I just started writing down jokes, and the rest is history, my man. Uh, would you say there's like a similarity between like uh, music and comedy? Um, it's similar in that it's a discipline which requires a lot of work. The expression is very different. Um, music requires, I think, a lot of technical skill. Comedy is, I feel like there's more of a, you get just start getting a feel for it. Although music, there's certainly a lot of feel there. And music is much more collaborative than comedy. I mean, Mm -hmm. comedy, you know, I work on a TV show, which I collaborate with uh, 200 other people, but the art of making jokes generally is a solo one. Right. You make a joke on your own and you work it into the fabric which your colleagues have sewn together. But writing jokes, I feel like, is different than playing music because when you play music, you're inherently with a group. You're with a rhythm, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you you feel there's something similar as to being in a band and being in a writer's room together? Yeah, I think it's a similar dynamic there. Um, I mean... Yeah, I've only been in a couple of writers' rooms. One's a lot cooler than the other. Being in a band, <laughs> yeah, I would say for sure that being in a band is much better. And if I could somehow trade my place with uh, the rhythm guitarist for the the or something, I would definitely <laughs> do that instead of this hellish life that I've crafted for myself. But uh, yeah, I, I, I could I could see the uh, the similarities there. Um, yeah, yeah. When you did you did you go to college? Mm-hmm. I did. I went to Boston College. Which does have a um, it has an improv team and a sketch team there, but I was never on either of them. I was just doing my own thing. Uh, notable alums there include Amy <laughs> Poehler and uh, I think Cameron Esposito may have gone there. I don't even know. Oh. Yeah, I think I probably have a friend who went there. Yeah, a lot of people. Oh. Yeah, but uh, did you? Uh, what'd you major in? Uh, English with a concentration in creative writing. And, uh, yeah, after I graduated, I just kind of generally knew I wanted to write something. So I was mm-hmm. writing short fiction and I was trying to get like a journalism job just cause that was the only way I knew how to apply my writing skills. So I started working a few, a handful of, of, of kind of like low, low ranking journalism jobs. And then, um, when I was 25, I moved to New York and I started interning at the onion. And that was basically how I got my foot in the door. And the comedy thing was getting an internship there. And then I got to apply to be a freelancer, I accomplished that. I got on the freelancer roles, started contributing the Onion, doing more and more and more of that until eventually I got hired there. How'd you get the uh, intern job? Uh, th- I religiously checked the jobs tab at Onion.com <laughs> for a long, long time, and then I kind of fell off it. And then one day I randomly remembered to check it again. And I saw there had been an ad put up for interns, and I freaked out, and I emailed uh, the guy who at the time was a guy named Brian Janish. And uh, I th- he emailed me back that day, and it was pretty obvious I was the last person he had emailed because I totally like, missed the boat for most of it. But he talked to me on the phone the next day, and he gave me the job. He was he was I was definitely the oldest intern by a good four, three or four years. 
I was definitely older than Brian. <laughs> oh, oh, right. That's kind of. I guess that's illegal, right? Well, I don't know what the legality is. I mean, I know they, that this was before you were required to pay interns, and you could give them college credit. But obviously, that didn't apply to me, so I was just working for free. I don't even think they gave us a friggin' subway card, man. <laughs> we, we really got we really got the short end of it, but it was great. I got I got my foot in the door there, and that's all I was looking for. There are some like. Uh, I, I've had personally some very bad internships where like yeah. I didn't get paid, spent so much money to do to go there and Such do it. What was the worst one? Uh, I don't. I don't think I should say on here. I don't want to disparage. It, you know? I don't want to disparage uh, any well, you pr- could, produ- production company. You could give a fake name. Uh, uh, <laughs> Donald freaking Trump's business. Okay, that's a very good one. It's <laughs> um, barely, barely a joke. I don't even think that's a joke. Um, <laughs> So what, what what were your responsibilities as an intern at The Onion? Uh, mostly just like bookkeeping, like Microsoft Excel spreadsheets, dis- distributing copies of things to people. Very low-level grunt work. The only creative thing they let you do is they let you pitch uh, the weather jokes. Back when The Onion had a print newspaper, uh, every print edition would have like a fake one-liner for the weather, and they would let the interns pitch those. So that was like my one ability or uh, option I had to prove myself was that. Mm-hmm. And when you when you start as an intern at a place like The Onion, like a place where you like love to write, mm-hmm. uh, how do you get them to see you as something more than an intern? You really don't. And if people want advice, I would say as an intern, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Right. It almost always comes off as irritating. The fact is, every intern at a, a, a place of comedy, everyone there already knows you're looking to get ahead and get up, make climb the ranks, or other, otherwise you want to be there. So you don't need to really show that you don't need to show your passion. You just need to show your, that you're competent and good at doing the grunt work they give you. And then maybe toward the end, if you've found some people there who you get along with, you can maybe say, Hey, I enjoyed my time here. Would you mind telling me what I could do to make incremental progress in this? You know? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was submit, uh, submitting headlines. Oh, so you started submitting headlines as an intern? No, I, I, after the internship I was, was up, they let you try out for that, which means you submit like four weeks worth of, worth of headline lists. Mm-hmm. And then if you pass the tryout, they, you basically they let you keep doing that. And so you, uh, you were a contributor for a while? I was a contributor to The Onion for something like two, two years and change. And I basically like climbed the ranks. Like at first I was just submitting headlines. Then I started submitting feature jokes, which are like the small like infographic um, American voices type jokes. And then I started writing full length articles. And at that point uh, I got a writing fellowship there, which is like a six month like trial period. And then I got hired from that. And uh, were they, were they still in New York during all this? They were in New York for most of it up until 2013 in which they moved to Chicago. And then that's when I, or a few months after that, that's when I moved to Chicago to do the fellowship. What was like working on the, the print, the print uh, edition, like, um, it wasn't really too much different because when I started working there, they were committed to the online model. They were p- publishing stuff online every day. The print paper was merely a box they would throw a handful of stories into every week. This, the nuts and bolts was still putting stories out online. I mean, we weren't looking at it as a print publication. And when I started working for them in Chicago, they only had print editions uh, left in three cities. I think it was Milwaukee, Chicago, and... Oh, I can't remember the third one. Um, Milwaukee, Chicago. Oh, and Madison. So oh. they only had three print editions left, and so it wasn't like it was pretty clear what was what was going to happen with that, and it did. And uh, so you mentioned the fellowship. What was it like being like doing the fellowship, where you're kind of a writer but kind of not, and kind of it's like a proving grounds, and it was very like you know I I knew that I was being monitored, and like they want to see how I'm doing, so I, I I really gave it a lot. I was um. I basically just busted my ass for like 80 hours a week, like making sure my drafts were great, making sure I had a lot of funny headlines, volunteering, volunteering for way more work than like I could, I could reasonably handle, you know, I was just writing so many drafts and it was great. You know, I really, I really, I, I saw this as being my one opportunity to do the job I always wanted to do. So I gave it my all. What's that uh writer's room like? Cause I've heard, uh, I've heard that podcast that this American life they did mm-hmm. and it sounds like tough. It's, Pretty tough. I mean, it's tough because they expect big things of you. They expect excellence. There's not a lot of room for uh, friendly. Oh, that was okay. That was a pretty good idea. Like, people mm-hmm. really do not 
uh, varnish their feelings much about how they feel about things. So, which is great because that's really what you need to succeed in comedy. I think is an honest assessment of your work. You don't want someone sugarcoating it. So it's pretty rigorous in that sense, but I love it. I mean, it was, it's just a, re- a really fun room to be in people with really great comedic sensibilities. Just, you know, telling jokes mm-hmm. can't be beat. Do, do you like writing in like that onion voice? Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the onion voice actually? Too? Well, well the, the, the inherent uh, formula of the onion voice, and this is kind of a, a it's going to sound almost obvious, but is very boring newspeak right. used to say absurd or funny things. So you use the boring newspaper language and, you know, write, write stories about cocks or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I think it's a, a big part of it is just joke density and the right word choices, which I think is something you need to do in all fields of comedy. Does, does your writing lean uh, generally towards satirical? Um, it's hard to say. I definitely, it leans more toward, I would say, thesis-oriented jokes in which the joke is telling a joke, but it's also trying to make some kind of point. And it's not like a heavy-handed point, but it's a real observation as opposed to wordplay or um, like goofiness, like absurdity without without an anchor. You know, I always well, that sounds pretty satirical to me. Then, yeah, I would say in that yeah. in that case, yeah, for sure. Because right. I, I always prefer jokes. I mean, I like silly jokes as much as the next guy. But I always prefer jokes that make an honest comment about the world you know and it doesn't have to be some like like serious philosophical comment just something that honestly depicts what you're talking about you know it is always like you see on twitter that the the jokes the things that tend to go uh extremely viral to use that phrase Mm -hmm. are the things that like people relate to in like a way that they, they do that in like a very small like way but yeah certainly i mean all art to to take a step back most art i will say succeeds because the person who views it identifies with what's being said by the artist. You're, mm. you're, you can't, it's much more difficult to succeed making art that the viewer doesn't understand or doesn't fit into his or her world. So by that logic, you know, jokes, I feel often need to work the same way in which the, the person lis- listening or reading the joke has to see what you're saying in, based on their own life. It's interesting. I remember in high school, I had this conversation with a friend where I was kind of bummed out because, like, uh, like jokes, you always have to have some sort of information that has to like be pre pre like known before the joke. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of bummed out that you can't just like create that almost. You can. You can in some yeah. I think you can. I think it's just it needs to be grounded somewhere. So if you're gonna make some crazy joke about something that doesn't exist, it needs to be alluding to some kind of logical set of values a good example for that is let me think of a good example you can edit this right you can edit <laughs> I, can, I can edit that point yeah. five minutes of silence while i think about a good example uh something absurdist um like something in the in the context of the onion that is silly for example is that article they did many years ago which was like uh, I, I can't remember the exact wording which is usually something i pride myself on but it's basically there's something along the lines of like National uh, Gorilla Association defends ownership of g- gorillas. And it's clearly making a parallel between gun ownership and saying, why should you be allowed to have these deadly gorillas and so forth? And it's an absurd thing on its face, but it's making a point, you know. Uh-huh. So it, whatever you're doing, sh- like it doesn't have to be as heavy handed or as obvious as that, but it should relate to something that pe- the audience sees in their own life in their yeah. own world. I guess, yeah, I agree with you on that. And I guess that kind of makes me a little bummed out that you can't just create like something with with no tangible well, you links. Well, you, you can. But it won't be funny, I think. Well, I think, I mean, a good like to stay in the Onion Inc. family, Clickhole right. yeah, is okay. much, much less grounded in reality. They will routinely do articles that true. have no bearing on anything you identify. And it's still funny. It's purely absurdism. And it doesn't strive to make any point, but it can still be very funny. I'm just saying, personally, my style tends to be weighted toward saying something. And I don't right. mean, again, I don't want to be saying something as in like making a strident point and really, you know, upsetting, you know, turning over the, the wheels of power. I just mean, I want to make, I want to be honest. I want to say things that are honest. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you at The Onion still when Clickhole started? Yes, I, I remember that. What, what, what did you guys think of it at the time? I mean, I was all about it. I, we, we were doing a little bit of collaboration 
with them at some point. Not not, not too much, but when it was happening, I was very excited about it. I thought it was a great idea. This was like, this is what, 2014? And this was really before people had really figured out how to parody sites like Upworthy and BuzzFeed. And like, no, no one was really taking broad shots of them. And Clickle was the first one to do that. And they were, I thought, I thought they really came, came out the gate strong. I remember the very first week, they had this really stupid thing where it was just a video of Calvin and Hobbes having sex. Yeah, I remember that. And it, it got yanked immediately because the advertisers were like, well, we did not sign up for child <laughs> pornography. And, you know, so it, it was on the website for like, you know, two days maybe. But it was it was like, it really just showed that they, they were, they, they had the sandbox to do whatever they wanted. And I thought it was really, I was always very impressed by it from the start. It's interesting too how they, they started out and you think, okay, it's going to be parody. Like the like the onion for BuzzFeed and stuff, mm-hmm. but then their their voice just got so weird and crazy. Yeah, I think I think they still it still does have the underpinnings of clickbait, but yeah, they definitely have gone on to their own thing, doing whatever they want. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really cool to have that freedom. Uh, when you were at the Onion, how would you generate headlines? I would generally just whenever. I mean, I was in such strict Onion mode that I would just always be thinking of headlines whenever I would see anything. So I would, you know, for example, one day I came up with a headline like, um, uh, God, why can't I remember headline phrasing anymore? It's, uh, it was, a, it was a headline about an everything bagel because I thought the, like, like I thought there was humor in the idea of like how lavish and like, you know, obscene it is to have everything on your bagel. So I just like wrote a headline about that. that got in and like, just things like that. I was always be on the, the watch for things in the world that could be, uh, uh, turned into headlines. And when that failed, I would um, buy an actual newspaper and I would just go through it and look at the areas in which they would talk about and riff on them and write headlines based on what I saw. It was almost just like like taking a random object out of a bag and like, oh, this, this, this is a tape dispenser. Okay, what's a, what's a really funny tape dispenser headline? I can make, you know? <laughs> so when you're working at The Onion, that's like the only thing like on your mind comedically. Like you're not... You're not thinking of like, oh, I, I got this idea for a pilot or something. No, back then, uh, back then I was really pretty much so- solely focusing on that. I was doing a, a decent amount of stand-up in my free time, but those are really the only two outlets I had because I, I mean, I, I wasn't really interested in television at the time. Mm-hmm. When you first started doing uh, stand-up, what are the kind of things you're talking about? When I first started doing it, when I was 25 or so, I was just doing like kind of stupid like sex jokes and like kind of like like really trying to like provoke the audience with like really you know gross or like uncomfortable things it was it was pretty basic like not not really too much different than your average like shock shock comedian open micer you know mm-hmm. um nothing i wrote from that period like has survived in my act like i feel like it's all just like kind of like shitty but yeah it was it was a lot of just like really it was basically what what most comedians would do their first year of doing comedy mm-hmm. And how written are your jokes when you when you do them? They're pretty written. Yeah. Everything I do comes from a, a written perspective just because that's how I, th- I think. And even when I have stand-up routines, like, they, I write them down pretty much word for word. Not because that's how I'm going to say it, but just because I want to organize my ideas. Mm-hmm. And I always best organize my ideas seeing them on the page. So everything I, I tell on stage has been edited as if it were as if it were a printed piece. And are you someone who's like each word, even like besides punchlines, obviously punchlines need to be worded very carefully, but like each word and the setup and everything matters to you? To an extent. I mean, there are definitely some words that are very important and some that aren't. A lot of time you're just trying to get from joke to joke. So you just want the fewest words possible and that you want them to flow naturally and be logical so the audience doesn't get confused. But I don't think word choice is as important. I mean, it's nice to use a fun flowery word, but I think... Mm -hmm. What's more important, I think, is the idea that's that's being presented. Right. And you've done stand up in both uh, New York and Chicago. Uh, what, what what do you think are the differences between those like comedy scenes? Chicago is much friendlier. Oh, really? I think it's it's definitely more of like a more casual. Like this is where you get your start thing. It's also much much cheaper to live in Chicago. Right, right. So people are a little less crazy because um, you can casually work you know twenty five thirty hours a week at a coffee shop and make rent. As opposed to here, you're just like constantly fighting to stay alive, and there's just so many other people doing it. So comedy is definitely more a little laid back in Chicago. Here, I think people kind of get the idea that it's the big time. That's interesting, I guess, because I guess you get the, uh, I don't know, yeah, I guess it feels more serious here and like more, mm-hmm. more weighty to it. It's more weighty, and also there's more work here. 
but there's right. so but there's but the proportion of people is so great that you know we're we're all just like ants fighting for a little mm-hmm. bit of sugar you know it's right. really not like it's the land of opportunity but you're still like really the odds are still dramatically stacked against you what's your uh favorite headline that you've written for the onion um one i always tell people i like actually I, this might be my favorite headline is um uh god i'm really bad at remembering worrying today um yeah frustrated insecure uh insecure frustrated bully considering entering law enforcement <laughs> going into law enforcement it's just kind of a critique of the type of people people i you know you assume would want to be cops you know really angry violence prone individuals right. yeah uh and so the onion uh kind of uh has been going through some you know financial issues recently i mean what do you think about uh i mean they're and they're like in a line of many other companies digital comedy wise that mm-hmm. have had troubles what do you think about uh digital comedy today i mean it's digital comedy it's all di- digital publishing it's really impossible to make any money doing this People just like you, they they have not figured out a business model that adapts to the fact that people don't want to pay for content. Mm. People will use ad blockers to avoid even websites getting that minuscule amount of revenue. And I honestly don't know what's going to happen because it's not something that really is conducive towards being able to pay a decent number of people to do to create good work. It's conducive toward being able to pay two guys in Latvia to right. write click to write clickbait headlines about you know with a picture of a woman with large breasts to get you to click on whatever scam it is it really doesn't benefit any type of content be it the New York Times or the Onion or anything like that I don't think any website is doing well certainly not the Onion um, I, I don't I don't know know what's going to happen I mean we're at a point right now where there's just so much content out there. And no one wants to pay for any of it. And I, that can only last for so long. And part of the part of the danger of that is people just aren't getting paid to do it. And I, I, I really don't know. I, I'm not terribly optimistic about how this ends up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I can think, like, I'm not sure what theories there are to how, how, this, how this is viable. Government subsidies, you know. You get you know Bill wow. Bill Gates to give you a million dollars. Like I just don't know how how these publications, including the Onion, can possibly stay afloat. Even even if the product is great, like the Onion, the Onion has a phenomenal product, and it's still like it doesn't matter. It's on the same level as you know uh, any, any website that does not have a phenomenal product. Well, the Onion recently did the article that said like, please click on the fucking article. We, we don't make any money unless yeah. you click the fucking link. Yeah. And, and it's true, and especially because uh, I know a lot of people who do not read The Onion or Click Cold. They just read the headlines and like they'll, they'll share it or whatever just reading the headline. It's very, very weird, very strange. Yeah, well, I mean, The Onion and Click Cold both, how it works is, you know, the headlines are the thesis statement. And then mm-hmm. the article uh, brings out the thesis statement in, in various, you know, variations, variations on a theme. And a lot of people don't just don't want to deal with that. I mean... It makes sense because how websites like Twitter and Instagram operate is you just scroll through a list of right. shiny baubles, and the headline is the bobble. And there's a lot of really great jokes in the full Onion article and the full ClickHole article, but people don't have time for that. Yeah, you, know? you mentioned ad blocker. Do you think it's a simple? Is that you think that's like the big killer? Is the ad blocker? I don't think that's the big killer. I just don't think it helps. Right. I mean, you know, subscription models don't seem to work, and if you can't even make a few pennies by linking to, you know, Dick sports on your, on your website without, you know, that being X'd out by, you know, some ad blocker, you know, what, I just don't know where, 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 where else the money can come from, you know? Yeah. It's weird. Cause like, uh, Patreon almost makes sense, but that's soon, if not now going to become like, there's like too many people on Patreon. Mm-hmm. If like the unneeded Patreon, the New York times, like if, if everyone did Patreons, it would not work out. Yeah. And Patreon only benefits a select few, you know, it's only, right. it's only a few people that are actually able to make any kind of money doing that. And there's a lot of people that aren't. So I don't know. And that's the same thing as, I mean, it's just begging for handouts. Right. And I don't mean to use that pejoratively, but like, that's not a business model. That's, asking pe- people for money like that's yeah. not there's not that you you, you couldn't you cannot go to a bank and say hey i need a loan um how are you gonna pay it back oh i'm just gonna beg for money yeah i'm gonna hope that people have the goodness of their heart like I, I just don't see that as being i see it as being viable for one individual with a good product but it's not something the industry can adopt yeah 
Yeah, I don't know. It seems like uh, maybe five years ago, it was a lot better out there. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot worse today than it was in 2013, even. Yeah, imagine what it's going to be five years from now. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot. Of, I think you know, we already saw like a, I mean, a lot of sites are gone now. I mean, you know, like Funny or Die is basically gone, pretty much. Oh, are they? Well, I don't think they they're they're doing like they they fired most people. Yeah. Yeah, I I heard they did a culling a few months ago. I, I didn't realize. It. I, I mean, I don't I don't really check out that website much, so I don't know what effect it's had on their. Yeah, I think they're they're mostly doing like branded stuff and like TV. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, TV is going strong. I don't see how that's the case. But there's, there are 600 scripted TV shows, so th- that's still being made. I, I don't think that's making any money either. But <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. I always wondered, like, because, you know, I mean, this is kind of a, a thing going on forever. But, like, with pilots, they just, in Hollywood, they order so many pilots and they spend budgets on those. And then they, it's such an inefficient system because then they just, like, most of them don't get made to series. Yeah, I mean, that's always how it's been done. Um, I think the bigger problem, at least financially, and I apologize if this has just turned into a industry industry uh financials discussion oh people love it the the bigger problem is just you're making so many of these shows and it costs a lot of money to make these scripted programs and i don't get where you're getting any money back you know if netflix can just make a hundred scripted shows like are they i they, they, i know netflix is notorious for keeping their financials opaque so who knows what they're getting back right. from it, but it's just not sustainable and yeah they <laughs> it seems like they could definitely be be not making any money oh certainly and it's you know either they're losing money or their investors are losing money. But the fact is, no system can sustain itself if there's not any money coming in. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It certainly. It's funny because I, I I feel like I do this podcast and stuff. This this, this stuff comes up often. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a lot of questions and a lot of uh, uh, kind of thoughts that mm-hmm. that don't come up to any answers. Well, here's a question: Do you make any money off of this podcast? Uh, very little because I do ads. So you do ads, yeah. and so for what, like, what what kind of companies or what kind of entities? Uh, usually, uh, on like uh, like website app type stuff. Right, and I assume it's not enough to. I assume you have a day job. In a yeah, day. it's not now. It's very right. little. So, but this is a seems like a pretty successful podcast. I saw that like you had a lot of big names on it and so yeah, forth. Yeah, it's so, somewhat, I don't know. Yeah, how, how many people listen to this podcast? Like uh, Around like 1,500 a week. 1,500 a week? Yeah. See, that seems like a lot. Like, it is It is and it isn't. That that seems like a lot. And I, I mean, I, I it's just odd that the problem is everyone, including you, is just throwing out their content for free. Yeah. So it kind of reduces the odds of making money off it. And you can go the Patreon route and you can get advertisers, but there's just so many other options out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know why I, I was on a page. I did pay, I, not, not this podcast. I, I uh, paid for people's Patreons before, uh-huh. and uh, I like I, I, I just stopped recently because I was like, I, I don't really need to do this. There's so no, much other stuff. Of course not. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. It's tough though. I want. I wonder because through this podcast. I think a lot more about comedy than I did before about like the business stuff and whatnot. Yeah, and it does seem like this is the. Worst time in recent history to try to become a comedy writer, I feel like. Well, it's definitely, I mean, it's the golden age. To of get co- paid, I guess, to get paid to be a comedy writer. It's not great to get paid, but the thing is, because there are 600 scripted shows and because there are so many opportunities, there are a lot of jobs out there. Not all of them are particularly good, but there's a lot of ways to make your voice heard. You know, mm-hmm. you can work, you can work with friggin', you know, Chips Ahoy and write, make a web series for them. You know, you can right. make original content for fucking, you know, uh, you know, uh, pensoil.com. Like there's a lot of like weird places to put your art that didn't exist 10 years ago. As for making money off of it in the long term, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have a, one of the, you know, a pretty stable job. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the fact is like there are more places to put your money, sorry, to put your things. So in turn, there are some revenue streams based on that. It's true. It just, yeah, I don't know. Cause it seems like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I think right now, if I were starting up doing comedy, it would right now it would be very daunting just because there's so many other people doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, comedy, especially stand up and performance, has such a low um, barrier to entry because you can just go up on stage and start start talking into a microphone. You don't need to 
don't need to purchase a violin. You don't need to go to art school. You can just start doing it. You mm-hmm. know, so it really doesn't stop so many people from just picking it up all the time. And every time someone else starts doing comedy, your odds of making it are that much less. Right. And it, it, it does seem like it is at its most, like live comedy specifically is at, at its most popular in years. I, I mean, not in terms of like, but in terms of people doing it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are on it, but I know that when I first started doing comedy and when I was actually in New York in 2010 doing standup, there were nowhere near as many people doing it yeah. as there are now. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, uh, you've written some humor pieces for like McSweeney's and New Yorker. Yeah, man. Uh, how'd you get started with that? And were you doing that at the same time as The Onion? Yeah. Um, I basically started doing that, God, 20, I think I started submitting around 2010, something like that. I, I basically like just wanted to get something published. You know, I wanted, you know, McSweeney's was publishing some great stuff at the time. <laughs> And um, <laughs> what, what a dig at McSweeney's! They, they used they used to publish some very funny things uh, <laughs> many years ago, and not now. Um, but uh, so you know, I, I just wanted wanted to get something funny published. So I, I wrote and submitted and got rejected a lot of pieces there. But yeah, I always you know enjoyed writing the McSweeney's shouts and rumors type stuff because it's kind of like it's one of the things I'm I'm good at is like thesis based comedy where you have like an inherent joke and you kind of extend it through five hundred seven hundred words, you mm-hmm. know. What do you like about um, like the the humor pieces versus like performing stand up live? Um, it's just a different way of telling jokes. You can get away with longer turns of phrase, more intricate language. Because when you tell on stage, you really need to be punchy and short. Because you know long compound sentences don't translate well to a funny set that's moving along. Mm. And I, I think I just, I mean, I definitely prefer stand up because you get to really just like be there and you know washing the laughs and really you know it's a more dynamic experience but i also just like i enjoy the the written pieces because it gives you an opportunity to to tell a story Mm -hmm. and you have more freedom and length in which to really like really uh develop it you know Mm -hmm. it's not like a a stamp joke where you need to get the punchline asap and often with the with the humor pieces i imagine you don't have a deadline how do you motivate yourself to to do it um, ever since I started working at the onion 80 hours a week, I've always been pretty, pretty good at self-imposed deadlines just cause I'm so good at just hammering stuff out at this point. You know, I don't really get writer's block anymore cause I just know, I know how to write and I know that things aren't going to get written unless I spend the time doing mm-hmm. it. So it's as simple as that. Did you used to get writer's block, uh, before the onion? Yeah, for sure. And once I started, you know, being whipped into shape there, that was it. Like I've, yeah. ne- I've never had difficulty writing since then. Yeah, that seems like that'd be a good experience for that. Cause it's it, great, man. Keep, there's, there's really nothing that compares to it. I wish everyone had the opportunity. Uh, what would uh, be your advice to people getting involved in like online humor pieces? Um, I think for things like McSweeney's and uh, Shouts and Murmurs, I think it's important to have a centralized joke. If you read, you know, read anything on on those websites, it based like the the title of the piece basically explains what the piece is going to be about. Mm. It basically, that's the thesis and everything else that comes is verbiage being used to support the thesis. So pick a strong thesis slash title that can support a long piece. And I think make it as dense with jokes as possible. I think you don't want to waste a lot of space without any laughs. That's just death to a reader Mm -hmm. and short, short punchy sentences and short punchy paragraphs help. Uh, and so what made you decide to leave the onion when you did? Um, I wasn't really looking to leave the onion, but Colbert's new show was starting up and I knew it was a special opportunity. And I was like, well, I'm not looking to leave, but if I could get hired there, I would consider taking that job. And so I applied to be a, I, I, this was before I had a manager. I I managed to get a manager like just in the nick of time in order to get the packet for the uh, new Colbert show. I wrote the writing packet. I interviewed for it. I didn't get it then. But I did get offered to apply for the uh, digital job, which is like writing sketches and behind the scenes stuff. So I applied for that. I got that. And then I moved to New York to do that job. So uh, for digital, you're doing like all the stuff that's going on the Twitter feed and stuff. Yeah, I was writing a lot of tweets. I was writing uh, scripts for sketches that would go online. Like when the celebrity guests came on the show, we would go backstage and be like, hey, we have like this little 40-second 40, 40 sketch we'd like you to do if you don't, wouldn't mind just reading some lines of the camera. And so we, we did a lot of those. Eventually, we started doing longer, more involved bits that ended up going on the show. It would be like the equivalent of uh, 
the SNL digital shorts, you know? Mm -hmm. So we would do a little bit of that. Yeah. Is there stuff that worked specifically for digital that wouldn't necessarily work on the show? Yeah, certainly. Because a lot of it was like just really kind of slapped together. Because you you have like, you know, you get 10 minutes with Whoopi Goldberg. Like, you, you whatever you get has to work, you know? Like, <laughs> right. So like, it's, it, it, you're kind of restricted by that, by the lack of lead time. Mm-hmm. When you get 10 minutes with Whoopi Goldberg, what do you do? You're like, hey, Whoopi, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Like, ideally, you have all your pieces in place. You have the camera set up. You have whatever props you did set up. You have the lines on teleprompter, so you can do it as quickly as possible. Like, because like, like they're they're not they're on this show with three million people. They want to focus on that. They don't want to do your stupid little comedy bit. Right. So, so you try to make it as easy as possible. And you know, maybe they'll they have time to do two takes, and that's that. Would you remember what the bit was you did? Wh- which with, with Whoopi? Oh, uh, the Whoopi Goldberg thing was actually a, a larger bit we did where it was a thing I came up with where it was like a phone sex style hotline that you could call to talk to celebrities in which the celebrities would say that like the inane talk show chatter you often hear. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you call, you know, you call up and you have Brian Cranston saying, Oh yeah, I also did this thing earlier in my career. Like, Oh, blah, <laughs> blah, blah is so fun to work with, you know? So they just like say stupid talk show stuff, like, but in like a sexy, mm-hmm. like trapping, you know? Mm-hmm. So you move uh, to New York, you leave the onion for this job. Were you worried that you wouldn't be able to move from digital to like the TV staff? Um, yeah, because it was my goal to eventually get that TV job that I had failed to get the first time. And I was hopeful that if I did a good job on the digital side, I would get it. And ultimately I did. I did ultimately get promoted. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just knew I had to do a really good job on the digital thing and make sure people mm-hmm. realized I was good and funny and so forth. And then when the time came, when an opening came up, I still had to apply for the writing job again, but I was certainly helped by the staff there knowing that I was funny. Mm-hmm. How do you approach uh, writing a packet? Um, my philosophy, I've only written a handful of packets, but my philosophy is always create a lot of ideas first and then mm-hmm. pick the best ones. Um, so just when I first wrote the first Colbert packet I did, I spent like, four or five days because like they give you like four prompts they want they want like two sketches they want one mile routine and i just spent the first four days just coming up with areas that would work places for jokes to fit before i even really started writing and just like came up with so many ideas before i I went to work and i think that really helps because it allows you to kind of eliminate some of the crappier ideas and really once you start you have the best framework in which to work and then you try you just choose the format for each bit well the format is kind of set by them when they say hey, we, we want a monologue routine with five jokes oh, i mean when you have like the ideas you choose like oh this is a monologue trick or this is a sketch yes yes you, yeah. you, you know what it is and you and you kind of know how to approach it mm-hmm. and so this was your your first television writing job what was that transition like um well once i started writing for the show um it wasn't t- too bad of a transition, mostly because I'd been there for a year and change and seen how it was done, and I knew the show's voice very well. So it was mostly just getting accustomed to just like hammering out a script every morning. You know, Donald Trump does something, we we, we riff on it, and then we write it, write mm-hmm. a script on it. Do you tend to do more sketch or monologue stuff? The show doesn't have a ton of sketch, right. so it's mostly monologue. Like the the bulk of Stephen's jokes are in that first or uh, the first act in which it's him doing his, his standing monologue to the camera mm-hmm. what are the hallmarks of a, of a good monologue joke to you um i think if it's just if it's just if it's funny if it's funny and makes a point that maybe the crowd doesn't get i think a bad monologue joke is a joke about trump's hands or trump's skin or trump's hair mm-hmm. a good one is something that points out something that you may not have automatically thought of mm-hmm. It, there seems to be the, the late night shows. I feel like used to do like that kind of stuff, but it seems like that's pretty much out now. I guess because you know, you, I mean, after four years of having the guy around, you kind of like, you know, we can't talk about his hair anymore. I would hope so. I mean, you still hear a lot of them, but yeah, at least on our show, I know we're everyone there from the top to the bottom is pretty sick of jokes about his hair. So mm-hmm. it just forces you to kind of like shift and find other things to joke about. You know, uh, what kind of stuff do you say work on works on Colbert but wouldn't work on like another show? Well, our show is primarily uh, current events based, so most of our jokes involve that day's news. We don't do things that are more uh, freewheeling. We don't do a lot of like Conan O'Brien style, just like zaniness. Um, so, so things like that would like just don't fly. You know, mm-hmm. I've had ideas that I just know I can't pitch because there's no chance of them getting on. You know, 
And is that kind of frustrating that you kind of have to write these these current events stuff sometimes? I wouldn't say it's frustrating. I mean, I know, like, I accept that this is the job. I'm not being paid to follow my muse. I'm pay- mm-hmm. being paid to do my job that I've been hired to do. So I can't. I don't have the luxury of being frustrated. It's definitely not inherently what I want to do in my heart of hearts, but it's my job, so I have mm-hmm. to do it. And I, when once I leave, I can I can pursue my you know quote unquote passions mm-hmm. at whatever I want. But when I'm at work, that's what I'm doing. It's uh, it's strange to me when I think about it. When you're like a, a comedy writer to stand up and stuff, and then you're when you do like some of these these late night shows, you kind of have to be like an, a somewhat of an expert in politics. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of a, weird for you or difficult for you? No, I mean p- politics. I, I'm interested in politics because it's a complicated thing, and I like things. I like complicated areas that have lots of facets to them. Before I broke through to the Onion, I was interning, or sorry, I was uh, reporting for this legal publication called law 360, which is like an online newsletter slash website. And when I was there, I had to really learn a lot about, uh, law and governance and, you know, the political system. So I was pretty well versed in the nuts and bolts of how, you know, the world works. So it's been, it hasn't been, that that was a huge, a huge help to me, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you write comedy about, uh, the times we live in? These horrible, horrible days. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just make things funny. I mean, it's, 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 these are horrible days, but they're also very interesting and very funny days. I mean, yeah. say what you, about, you will about Donald Trump, which we will, but he's a funny guy and he does a lot of really funny, crazy stuff that you would not have seen mm-hmm. thought possible. So that makes it pretty easy. And, you know, you, you just have to ha- bring some levity to the situation. We tend not to, we tend not to write about the, the really dejecting stuff too much, but, mm-hmm. you know, you know, for example, when when uh, all those immigrant babies are being put in cages, which for the record they still are, but that's kind of left the news cycle now. That was a difficult challenge because you're dealing with something that's so inherently awful, and you yeah. have, to tr- have to try to get a crowd full of people to laugh at it. It's not easy, but we did our best. You know, it's weird that that left the news cycle. That was huge, and then it just goes away. I mean, they what what they do? That he 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 issued some kind of executive order right. saying it wasn't the case, but there's still hundreds of kids that. Are, have been separated from their parents who have been deported and so forth. It's kind of doesn't seem to be, it has not reached what I think most people call a satisfactory conclusion, but yeah, the news cycle can't sustain interest in one thing. You know, this is John McCain's dead. Uh, you know, Eminem released an album, you know, you can't really, Yeah, that's just how it works. What, what's something that's uh, surprised me at work, working in late night? Um, I'm not sure if I'm surprised by it, but I, I am just imp- impressed at the pace of it. How because you create a new show every day, it's just nonstop energy, and mm-hmm. there's no room for dilly dallying, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of impressed me how adaptable everyone is at just pushing out this show every night and mm-hmm. then going to sleep and coming back in and doing the same thing the next day. It's just impressive how the machine is so is so efficient at this point. It must be kind of surreal to be like to be in that of just like every day there's a new show, like new celebrity guests, like new people in. Yeah, and I mean it's pretty manageable for me because I don't have to deal with the celebrity guests right, or right. anything. I, I'm basically just working on the monologue and maybe some future bits with future guests, you know, but it's, it, it's pretty manageable for me. I, I enjoy it. I like the challenge of it. And, uh, when you have stuff like, uh, an award show, how do you prepare for that? Oh yeah. So last year Colbert hosted the Emmys and that was a pretty involved project. We basically from like four months out started brainstorming ideas and we came down to like three or four pre-taped sketches and then we had to write the monologue that he kicks off the show with um so we basically spent a few months working on the framework of that we wrote most of the monologue the week leading up to it i believe because you know the monologue has to be more or less based on what's happening now mm-hmm. and the monologue was you know based on the world of entertainment but you still needed to be grounded in the current times and then we also were gradually working on the pre-taped pieces i specifically pitched and worked on that that song he kicked it off with. I'm not sure if you saw the Emmys. Right. I, I did. I don't quite remember. Anything. Yeah. He, he did like a song that like, like paid tribute to television because it distracts us from the horrors of the world, you know? Uh-huh. So like we, we went through a lot of drafts of that and you know, the people that shot it, like got a ton of uh, celebrity cameos and d- interesting locations and so forth. So it was a mm-hmm. huge, a huge amount of work to do a very short piece, you know? Mm-hmm. Did you, did you get a monologue joke on? Yeah. I think I just got one monologue joke on. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. It was like, um. Oh yeah. So so at one point, Stephen says, "Um, like it's been a great year for diversity. In fact, this year 
has had the most oh, yeah. diverse, uh, like number of diverse uh, Emmy nominees on record. And the crowd, crowd applauds and goes, wow, I didn't realize you were, it was possible to applaud while, while patting yourself on the back. <laughs> and that, that didn't really kill, but I thought it was a good point. Well, yeah, those jokes obviously wouldn't kill with that audience, but yeah. at home people, people probably enjoyed that. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you like to be doing next? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty content where I'm at right now. I, you know, I, I, I do Colbert. I do the stand-up thing. I've been working on some small projects here and there, but nothing really like life-changing that would, you know, require me to quit my job or move or anything. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty content at the time being. At some point, I probably want to get into some kind of scripted, script, making some kind of scripted thing, my own show, that type of thing. But I don't really have anything that's pressing on me that needs to come out. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. Michelangelo who needs to release, you know, the sculpture from the <laughs> from the block of marble. Like I've, I'm pretty content just to to kind of roll right now you know have you have you written uh, like scripted stuff like on your own time and stuff yeah i'm I'm working on a couple of things that aren't really they aren't debutable so i can't really i don't really want to talk about them because they're not really in in a state where i would want anyone to to see it yet but yeah (laughs) my off time i do be crazy if i was like tell me about your projects that you're working on uh cool okay so we're gonna wrap up uh with you giving your thoughts on a sketch pitch i have oh yeah let's, let's hear it man um. Oh, so you know, in Happy Days, uh, the Fonz w- would hit the jukebox. Yes. In a play, so this would be a sketch where he's like, um, he's he's hitting the jukebox, but it's during the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. If we we're like Fonz, it's we're trying to watch the Super Bowl, man. Uh-huh. This is like a sure. sure. We don't we don't want to listen to music. Yeah. And yeah. He just keeps on like he's, but he's like the guy. You know, he keeps on do, like, but I'm the Fonz. I'm the Fonz, man. And he keeps playing. You know, uh, celebrate good times or something. Right. Like yeah. That. So this is in a bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. I, I, when you first said that, I was thinking like Fonz hitting other machines. Uh, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure what kind of funny machines you have. Like, oh, a toaster starts toasting because he punches. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's. I think that's funny. Um, I wonder if it has legs. That's my question. Yeah, I've been I've been noticing that my ideas are kind of uh, the short like one second, and that's that's it. Yeah, I mean, for a sketch, a big part of it is that it needs to sustain for three or four minutes, so it needs to be able to go somewhere. And it, it's hard to be like, the Fonz has to like up the ante. He can't just keep doing the same thing. I wouldn't say. Yeah, but I like I like the idea in general of him like like going to a funeral and like doing it. Oh like, yeah, like, interrupting a moment that should not be interrupted. You know. Yeah, maybe that's the thorough line of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I like the idea. I like that image. It's really cool. Yeah. Fonz was. Man, Fonz was cool. God, he was such a cool guy. Yeah, it's always fun to watch those clips. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually ever seen Happy Days. Me neither. But the <laughs> clips are fun. seeing Henry Winkler like, as a young man. Yeah, I like man. That. all right. Yeah. Um. All right. Thanks for coming out. Anything you want to plug? Plug, plug, plug. Uh, no, not really. I mean, you can follow me on Twitter and check out my website and come to my come to my comedy shows if you feel like it. You know, that's that's about it. I I, I appreciate you having me on, man. Oh, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this has been a boardwalk audio podcast for more information and shows visit boardwalkaudio.com don't forget to rate and subscribe now